Well, Labor Day weekend normally is not just marking kind of the end of the summer season. For most people, it's certainly marking the end of the summer season in our preaching schedule as well. I know some of you are saying, wait, where's Exodus? We barely touched it. Well, we'll be back next summer. And we'll pick up in chapter 5 and we'll get back. It's just kind of how things worked out in this summer season for us. So we're diving back into our study of the book of First Thessalonians. And we're picking up right where we left off when we, we transitioned to the Old Testament for the summer season. And uh, we're, we're going to dive back into it. And I, I recognize that it is a sobering subject that we deal with this morning. But it is also a very, very necessary subject for us to address and to address in as complete a way as we possibly can. In a variety of ways and many occasions, I am reminded week after week as I come here to preach to you as I stand in front of the congregation, that even as well as we get to know one another in our lives together as a church family, I can never really know what's actually going on in the secret places of your own life week in and week out. I really don't know and none of us really know the details of what's going on in your home, of what's happening behind the scenes that's hidden from everyone else, particularly in the area of sexual immorality. It could be, very well be, that some in this room have been engaged in ongoing sexual immorality, a behavior that no one here has likely been aware of, but the Lord knows. The Lord knows every detail. In fact, it is certain that we have people present this morning who are currently battling some form of sexual immorality or who have been battling it over the last few months, perhaps just the last few years. That's reality. To deny it is to deny reality. To be shocked by that is to be naive. To be judgmental about it is to simply make yourself unhelpful. And maybe you're one, you would say, well, I don't particularly struggle with sexually immoral behavior or thoughts, and I want to praise God alongside of you. But you certainly will come in contact with someone who is struggling. It's guaranteed. You will come in contact with a Christian who is struggling in this area. I have no doubts about that. Now, I understand what the Bible says about immorality, As a lifestyle, if you engage in immorality as God defines immorality in the pages of the scripture and it becomes the characteristic of your life, it's what you defend, it's what you live for, then I understand what the Bible says regarding that, such as in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 verses 9 to 11 where it lists a variety of sexually immoral sins and then makes this statement that those who live in sexual sin will not inherit the kingdom of God. Galatians 5.19 lists immorality as one of the deeds of the flesh. And in verse 21 of Galatians 5, it says, those who practice such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there are many other such places. In Ephesians 5 and Colossians 3, Revelation 21 and Revelation 22, all describe 
the reality that if you live in unrepentant sexual sin, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. It's the indication that you are not a Christian. But it is also obvious from the New Testament that Christians can commit such sins. Even if and when they acknowledge immorality to be sin. Why else would Paul give us instruction like we're reading here to a church, to professing Christians, if he did not believe that Christians could engage in this kind of behavior, even though it should not be the mark of their life? We have to recognize, and and we should if we have even a casual reading of the Bible from the beginning to its conclusion, that immorality is the natural drift of every human heart. Every human heart naturally drifts toward immorality. You look at it in the Bible, as soon as the Bible began and as soon as sin enters into the human heart in Genesis chapter 3, just walk through the pages and see how it affected sexuality. From multiple marriages to homosexuality to unregulated sexual expression, it's all through the pages of the the opening book of the Bible. It's clear to see. But immorality is not just the natural drift of every human heart, but because it is the natural drift of every human heart, it becomes the natural culmination in every human culture. It was in Israel's ancient culture, if you go to the book of Leviticus, particularly chapters 18 through 20, it's what theologians regularly call the holiness code, and just walk through those chapters and identify how many sexual sins are identified by name. Why? Because that was what was the natural bent of the culture of their day and God's people were called to be distinct because they represented him in that culture. So their sexuality could not be the same as the culture that surrounds them. Immorality was also the natural culmination in the Christian culture as it began In Christianity's original culture in the first century, particularly the culture that the Apostle Paul is is writing these letters to that we have from him, immorality was the norm. In reading through a bit of this through the last week in preparation for this morning, I found one commentator who really summed it all up well. It's a lengthy Statement, but I want you to listen to this because this will outline for you how prevalent sexual immorality was in the first century, what the mindset was. In Greco Roman society, marriages were usually family arrangements rather than love matches. Typically, men in their middle 20s were paired with young women barely in their teens whom they usually had never met. So it was expected that married men would have sexual relations with other women, such as prostitutes, female slaves, or mistresses from lower social classes. This is why Demosthenes in 384 BC, probably the greatest of the Greek orators and a respected citizen of Athens, could state matter-of-factly in his attempt to praise wives. He said, quote, "'Mistresses we keep for our pleasure.'" concubines for our day-to-day physical well-being, and wives in order to bear us legitimate children and to serve as trustworthy guardians over our households, end quote. That attitude 
had not changed at all some three centuries later is evident from the words of the Stoic philosopher and moralist Cato, who praised those men who satisfied their sexual desires with a prostitute rather than with another man's wife. Cicero, early before the first century AD, one of Rome's most famous politicians and orators said this, quote, If anyone thinks that young men should be forbidden to have affairs, even with prostitutes, he is very strict indeed. For his view is contradictory, not only to the law of the present age, but even with the habits of our ancestors and with what they used to consider allowable. For when was this not a common practice? When was it blamed? When was it forbidden? When, in fact, did that which was lawful become that which was not lawful? Unquote. In other words, what we would refer to, what the Bible refers to as immorality was just commonplace. Why was that? Well, it's because religion was commonplace and almost all pagan religion in the first century was connected to immorality. If you'll remember when we studied through the book of 1 Corinthians and Paul is dealing with the idolatry that was beginning to seep into the church, chapters 8, 9, and 10, we we noted how paganism and idolatry was everywhere. If you celebrated anything, a birthday, an anniversary, anything, it was always dedicated to some pagan god. And what is also a reality in that pagan culture where idolatry pervaded everything was that immorality was usually attached to that idolatry. So when there's so much idolatry and all of it's connected to what the Bible would call immorality, you can see it's just the norm of society. I remember three years ago when our family visited the most well-preserved first century city in all of the world, the city of Pompeii. Maybe you've been there. We also visited the National Art Museum in Naples, which has much of the the material that they have uh, brought out of Pompeii and cleaned up and put on display. We were using a little little recorded walk through the, the gallery and Kelly and I had forwarded a little bit ahead of it to find out, ah, there's a particular room in the art gallery we cannot take the kids to. It was called the erotic room. It was the erotic room because Pompeii was like any other first century city in the ancient world. It was right there on the coastline and so it brought in people coming and going throughout the city and there were brothels all throughout the city. Many of them devoted to pagan worship, and it was very commonplace, and you can see all of this today. You could walk into a particular brothel, and there on the wall would be every depiction of every kind of immoral behavior that you could imagine and more, and you simply pointed to the picture and said, that's what I want. That was commonplace. That's the way people thought. That's how they lived. It was never expected that you would live with one person in loyalty, sexually, for the duration of your life. That's unique to Christianity. That's unique to the Bible. In the ancient world, they didn't need the internet to pursue some of the most heinous expressions of immorality. It was like breathing to them. In fact, that's how they talked about it. It was viewed as something merely biological, 
And, and they would say, and they would come up with phrases and little jingles that gave you the sense, well, if it's biological, then it has no moral component to it. Like Paul, when he describes that viewpoint of the secular Corinthians in 1 Corinthians 6.13, he quotes their little jingle, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. That's how they viewed sex. It's just biological. It's just what people do. It's animalistic. Therefore, it can't be immoral. It can't be non-spiritual. It's our modern culture as well, isn't it? Sure, in fact, there could be some in this room today that actually have that argument. Well, if it's biological, it has no moral component to it. That's not new. That's an ancient way to think about sexuality. I mean, you think about it today, almost everyone, almost everyone in our society and almost every place in the world today has instant access to the World Wide Web and everything it contains in regard to sexual immorality in their pocket. They can access it anytime, anywhere they desire. It is an epidemic. You can download an app that assists you in secretly setting up and engaging in immoral encounters. Sex outside of marriage is now the expectation just for having a relationship, any relationship. In fact, did you realize there's a new sexual identity that has emerged onto the scene of our American culture called the demisexual? The demisexual is the person who feels that they can only have a sexual encounter with someone that they actually have an emotional connection to. Now think about that for a moment. Think about that. What does that mean about the general idea about sexuality and sex? That it's just the way you relate to people. It's the way you have a relationship with someone. And some people now say, well, I have an identity that says I can only have sex if I have an emotional relationship. And you thought that was normal. I thought it was normal that that's, that's who you would have such relationships with if you had a significant emotional connection to them. No, now it's just biologically normal. That's how we relate. Our culture is not radically different than the culture of the Apostle Paul. Our Christianity should not be different than Paul's either. Christianity has not changed. Culture has not really changed. So, how do you come to the aid of those who are caught up in sexually immoral behavior? Which likely could be several people in this room today, that if you were honest and you would admit that you have been engaging in what the Bible would describe as immoral behavior, how, how should we come alongside to help? How should you think about it? There are many people who try to overcome sexual sin and sexual temptation with little more than human imagined, culturally defined, personally driven approaches to sexual integrity, and they always fail. And all they do is frustrate. And all they do is make the situation worse. 
Because any approach that you take that is anything less than completely driven by the gospel of Jesus, which actually addresses the human heart and enlivens the heart with the gospel to be able to embrace a different sexuality than the natural bent of your sin-laden heart, any other attempt other than the gospel will prove not helpful. So what is a biblical approach? How does the Bible assist us to overcome sexual immorality? Well, the verses that Terry read, 1 Thessalonians 4, 3 through 8, it details how we're going to grow in a gospel-driven, not just a human imagined, but a gospel-driven approach to sexual purity. So that's what I want to talk about. How do we grow in sexual purity in a gospel-driven way. We're going to look this morning at what Paul gives us here, three different angles. We're going to approach sexual purity in three different angles so that we take a gospel-driven approach to growth in sexual purity. Now again, if this is not you and your behavior, it will be for you to help someone else who is struggling. So I would pay close attention to this because you are going to encounter people who need your help in this area. So here's three different angles to pursue if we're to take a gospel-driven approach to pursuing growth in sexual purity. Here's number one. This is really simple. Avoid sexual immorality. How about that one? Don't engage in it. Can I just make it plain? If you are here this morning and you have been engaged in sexual immorality, stop. All of it. Now. Avoid sexual immorality. Look at verse three. This is what Paul says explicitly. For this is the will of God. Your sanctification, that is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Stop engaging in any immoral activity at all, ever. But this is not just the Bob Newhart approach to counseling. If you've seen that YouTube video, just stop it. Don't look it up right now. I know you have access. Do not do it. That's the sin of Achan. It will surely find you out after church. But this is not just the Bob Newhart approach. Just stop it. It's much more than that. Do you see the very first word of the sentence in verse 3? What is the very first word of the sentence? For. Meaning, the injunction to avoid immorality is connected to the first two verses that we looked at some months ago that was all about the general approach of how to pursue Christian growth. In other words, you're not going to stop immorality if you do not try to stop it within all of the principles, the guidelines that we laid out for you on how to grow as a Christian. This is just a part of Christian growth. And if you try to do it another way outside the gospel and outside the principles of Christian growth, you will not be successful. 
All of these elements that we looked at, there were a number of them. Growth flows from genuine faith. Spiritual growth is necessary. It's not optional. Growth is tied to received truth. Growth is about living for God's pleasure. Growth is not satisfied with present progress. Spiritual growth is connected to obeying God's word. Those are the general principles that we saw in the first two verses. And all of those elements have to be the atmosphere from which you approach growth in overcoming immorality and pursuing a gospel-driven purity. In fact, as he lays out, here's, here's the ground rules for spiritual growth. The very first application of that is to sexual immorality. I mean, there's many, many issues in the Christian life that we need to grow in. And he's going to talk about others of them here in this text. In this chapter, he'll unfold more of them. But the very first one he starts with is immorality. And you know why. I mean, if it was that prevalent and pervasive in the average person's mind, it was just the expectation, then you would see, ah, we've we've got to start here. Got to start right here. And I would say, in our modern culture, this is exactly where we need to start. This is the easy place to start, is to address the issue of sexuality. Avoid it. This is God's will, your sanctification. Abstain from sexual immorality. The word abstain is a term that typically means to to gain something, to obtain something. But the form that we find it in here, in the original Greek text, is what we refer to as the middle voice. It's reflexive. It means obtain essentially for yourself. And every time it's used in this middle voice, it has the connotation of abstain. Abstain. Keep yourself from it. Do not allow yourself to obtain. Used again in 1 Thessalonians 5.22. Abstain from every form of evil. Refrain from it. Keep yourself away from it. Avoid any contact with it. Now he tells us, what are you to abstain from? The New American Standard that I'm reading from says sexual immorality. That's one word in the Greek New Testament. It is the term porneia, from which we get the English word pornography. Porneia. It is a word that is very broad and encompasses virtually every category of sexual immorality. That is, every expression, any expression of sexuality that is outside God's original design for its expression, that is immorality. Engaging in sexual relations with a person who is not your spouse is immorality, Matthew 5.32. Matthew 15.19 mentions porneia in addition to adultery, indicating that it is other expressions of sexuality beyond just infidelity to your spouse. It's many things. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 lists all kinds of categories of sexual deviation that is immoral. 1 Corinthians 6, 12 and the verses following describes prostitution as a specific kind of immorality. Transgenderism is marked in the Bible as immoral. All forms of homosexuality, bisexuality, or what the world calls queer, or whatever falls under the plus sign, are all forms that the Bible would mark as immorality. Now, I I get it. There can be a really healthy debate 
on all of these issues from some supposed biological foundation, but that will not change what the Bible actually says about these things. It's very clear. It's very clear. Even in the Old Testament, it outlines some of the most bizarre behaviors, sex with animals. It, it marks incest as a particular kind of immorality. Even intentional sexual expression in your mind with another person who is not your spouse is considered a form of adultery and thus porneia, immorality, Jesus said in Matthew 5.27. Paul had to remind the Corinthians, because of immoralities, each man is to have his own wife, which is a categorical statement that any sexual expression outside one man and one woman devoted to one another as husband and wife for their life is immoral. That's the biblical definition of, of immorality. So the idea here in First Thessalonians is that all forms of any kind of sexual expression outside the institution of marriage as defined by God in the Bible is immoral. And you should not engage in any of it ever. You should be sexually pure. Meaning no sexual expression at all or only sexual expression with your spouse. Anything else is impure. Now what kind of gospel guardrails should you use to develop a mindset that would actually help you then to abstain from all immorality. And it's one thing for us just to say, stop. But what are the guardrails that actually help you to stop? What is the mindset you must have if you're going to stop it right now? Paul mentions two such guardrails in this category of abstain from sexual immorality. There are two here that we need to get into our mind. First, purity is God's will for you. This is how you stop. Purity is God's will. He says it explicitly. This is the will of God that you abstain from sexual immorality. This is the will of God. Now, why does he use that phrase? Well, it's actually another way to express what we see in chapter 4, verse 1. You remember, he's summing up. He's getting to the rest of the issues that he wants to deal with in verse 1, finally then, or for the rest of the things I want to talk about, brethren. We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction, watch this, as to how you ought to walk and please God. How to walk and please God. To please God is to follow the will of God. The will of God is the pleasure of God. This is just a synonymous phrase here. It is the will of God, it is the pleasure of God that you abstain from all sexual immorality. Now, we're not talking about God's will of decree here, where God decrees all things that will happen, and it all happens according to his decreed will. That's one way to think of the will of God. This is God's revealed will, or his will of desire. This is what he wants. It's even the particular term in the Greek, fellow, that just means his desire, his will, what he wants, as it's expressed in the Bible. 
It's God's will that you not involve yourself in any kind of immorality. Now, throughout my pastoral ministry, I I have encountered couples who come to me and they're interested in getting married. And they're they're interested in marriage and they've been together and they've been expressing their desire to become committed to one another. And they've been having sex with one another because that's how they've been expressing their interest. It's one of the first questions that I ask when we sit down for premarital counseling is, are you engaged in intercourse with one another? You say, well, why are you going there? Because I I want to know if you even can discern the mind of God in this relationship. So I'll have them say, oh, well, yes, we are, but we're going to get married. And so we know it's just within this bond and this relationship. And so will will you help us to get married? And, And I can categorically say to that couple in that moment that I know in this very moment, it is not the will of God for you to be married. You say, well, how can you possibly know that? Because I know what the will of God is in regard to sexual immorality. And you are engaging what is not his will. So how can I have any confidence whatsoever that you actually can discern the will of God when in the most fundamental area, you're denying the will of God? So you need, you need to stop that. And let's pursue righteousness in the relationship. And let's see if we can get to the place where you can discern the mind of God. Because obviously you cannot right now. Purity is God's will for you. Period. It is. Only when you are living in personal purity and then in relational purity are you actually doing what pleases God and reflecting his will. You're in no position to discern the will of God if you're expressly engaging in activity that he explicitly states is immoral and against his will. You have to avoid it. You have to avoid it with the mindset that says, this is immoral according to God. And that has to mean something to you. Now, you could throw God out the window. You can say, well, I I disagree with God's standard. That's fine. I mean, until you face him, that's fine. That I, I, you do what you desire to do, but if you're wanting me as a person who represents the Bible and God, and I, I have to reflect to you what the will of God is. So if you want to stop it, then you have to first be convinced in your mind, this is the will of God, your purity. But second, there's another guardrail that you need to have in your mind if you're going to avoid it. And that is not only is purity the will of God, but purity actually expresses your devotion to God. Purity expresses your devotion to God. Now, how, where do I get that idea? Well, again, it's in verse three. This is the will of God. What is the will of God? What's the next phrase? Your sanctification. Your sanctification. And your sanctification is that you abstain from sexual immorality. Now, this is a very specific term, the word for sanctification, and it Another way to translate it would be your holiness. Your being a holy person. Now remember, back in chapter 3 at the end in verse 13, Paul referred to all of the saints that will be coming with the Lord when he returns. Saints is the word hagios or hagioi. It's the basic word for holy. This word sanctification is the results of holiness. 
It's the expression of holiness. There's a very real sense in which when you become a Christian, you become a saint. You are one who is proclaimed holy by God because he treats you with the holiness of his son, which he imputed to you when you believed. For example, Ephesians 1.4, he, God, chose us in Christ before the foundation of the world that we would be holy and blameless in him. But what is holiness? What do we mean by holiness? What does the Bible mean when it speaks of holiness or sanctification? Being in a state of holiness. Well, by definition, this word hagiasmas, the root word, you can hear it, hagias, holy, is the root of this word. It's expressing what holiness is. What is holy? The only way to know what holiness is is to know who God is. That's the only way. When Isaiah encountered the Lord, Isaiah chapter 6, and the angels were surrounding the throne, and they're shouting back and forth to one another in Isaiah 6 about the character of God, what do they repeat three times in the most expressive way possible? Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. No other attribute of God is celebrated in that superlative way in all of the Bible. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God. Whatever God is in his moral perfection and in his distinction from what is common and what is other or what is ordinary or what is created, what makes him distinct is what determines what is holy. So to be related to God, to express your relationship to God, is to live in a holy way, which means you're living in a way that's completely devoted to God's distinctiveness. That's holiness. That's holiness. It means you live for God according to God's standards. That's sanctification. That's holiness. It's both a position that you have, you are holy. It is a practice that you do, you do holiness. You pursue holiness, you pursue holy activity because you are a holy person. You're devoted to God. And one particular expression of your dedication and your devotion to God as supreme over all things is that you avoid immorality. You want to show your devotion to God? Avoid immorality. All of it. Now, if you avoid immorality because, well, there's a financial impact or it may cost you your job or you're going to lose friendships, you're going to lose your marriage, you're going to make people angry, might bring divorce, that could be cultural shame. Can I just say, those are not gospel guardrails to avoid immorality because they don't require God, they don't require holiness. But if you are confident this is the will of God, this is how I express devotion to God is to abstain. Those are guardrails that help me quit. And I would say those are fundamental. If you find yourself in temptation, in the first 120 seconds of that initial temptation, if you could set those guardrails, I know God's will 
and I know what devotion to God looks like, in the first two minutes, you will likely not engage in an immoral behavior. If you're a believer, if that is your standard, if that's what pleases your heart. We're to live, as Paul said in 1 Thessalonians 2.11, in a manner worthy of the God who calls you. And that means to avoid immorality. I know sometimes we think of sanctification as this process of becoming holy, and it is. But it is more than just that. It's not just a process. It can be an action. The process of growing deeper in devoted living can be called sanctification. That's a good way to use it. But so can a single act of devotion be sanctification. Even one simple act can be sanctification. In fact, you need to see it this way. Sanctification brings about eternal life. You know that? Your hope of having eternal life in the future is tied to your sanctification in the present. Romans 6, 22. Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification, holiness. And the outcome of holiness, Paul says, is eternal life. The outcome of sanctification is eternal life. You can't pull those apart. Holiness leads you to eternal life. And it is the Holy Spirit who is the one who causes our salvation to result in a devoted living to God. Think of 2 Thessalonians 2.13. You can jot that down. Paul says of the Thessalonians, we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation. Listen to this. He chose you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification. Sanctification is the means by which you realize the end of your salvation. And that comes by the Spirit. You must have the Spirit. There should be no immorality named among God's people. You say, well, you you said that Christians do. Yes, but that doesn't mean it's okay. There should be none. I mean, Paul says in Ephesians 5, 3, immorality, immorality or any impurity or greed must not be named among you as is proper among saints, holy ones. How do you know if you're doing the will of God? Well, at least one area to check is your morality. And another area to check is, is are you living in holiness, devotion to God? That's the first angle of attack if we're going to be pure. Avoid it. And avoid it with gospel guardrails. Let me give you a second angle to pursue in a gospel-driven approach to growing in sexual purity. A second angle. First, you avoid immorality. Second, exercise self-control. Exercise self-control. And I just want to say from the very beginning of this one, this is perhaps today's cultural battleground in the area of sexual uh, self-control. This is where the arguments tend to go. This is where they've been developing for some 300 years in the way that the Western mind has been constructed to think. 
But self-control is the issue, and you're going to have to exercise self-control. Now, these verses, verses 4 to 5, actually tell us how we're going to practically abstain from immorality and do the will of God out of devotion to him. How are we going to do it? Now, I want you to watch this. There's two expressions of self-control that he highlights here. Two expressions of self-control. First, control your body. That's verse four. Control your body. Look at verse four. Abstain from sexual immorality. That's the end of verse three. And what does he mean by that? That each of you know how to possess his own vessel in sanctification and honor. That you know how to possess your own vessel in sanctification and in honor. This particular expression of self-control, I think, is almost sacrilegious to the modern mind. Because we're told if it is physical and natural, it cannot then be immoral. If it is biological, it cannot be immoral. And yet Paul says, no, every individual must know how to possess his vessel in a devoted way to God and in honor. Again, you remember the Corinthian motto, food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. It's just biological. Paul says, but wait a minute. You say food is for the stomach and the stomach is for food. God responds with, God will do away with both of them. Yet the body, he goes on in 1 Corinthians 6.13, the body is not for immorality, but for the Lord. The body is for the Lord. What you do with your physical body matters to God. If sex is merely biological, some say it has no moral impact on the soul. It's just like eating Now, I know there's another entire other heresy that talks about food being something spiritual. We are not dealing with that one today. 1 Timothy 4 will talk to that one. But this particular error suggests that the body does not have moral impact, that sex is amoral. But if you want to avoid immorality, you better learn how to control your body. That each of you know how to possess. And notice he emphasizes every individual, each of you, each one among you in the church. It's an individual decision, each of you. Others are not going to make the decision for you. It can't be just social pressure that's placed on you. You must consciously make this decision. And notice, each of you must know. You must know. This is something each individual must learn and grasp even about themselves. Different people, due to different experiences and habits of responses to issues in the past, habits of thinking, ways you were raised, what you have been exposed to, and in what ways and have, they are having various effects on you. Every person responds a bit differently to the kind of temptation expressed in immorality. So each person has to learn how they themselves are to master their own body in light of those details. I'd put it this way. Do you know the particular lusts of your own body? The Apostle Paul says in Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no 
provision for the flesh in regard to its lusts. If you know the cravings, if you know the particular triggers that lead you into immorality, then do not feed them. Do not give them what they want that fuels them. Romans 6.12 Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its desires, its lusts. You have to learn how to possess your body. And that's a very important phrase, how to possess. As one commentator notes, that, that word means to gain mastery over, to master your body, to bring your body into subjection. Remember Paul in 1 Corinthians 9, 27, he says, I buffet my body, not I buffet my body. I know it's the same. I mean, that's a verse I sometimes use when I go to the buffet. You know, Paul says, buffet your body. No, no. Buffet actually means to strike. And he's using the language of the athletic competitions of boxing and wrestling. You, You strike to bring it under control. You have to learn how to possess your own vessel, his own vessel. Uh, I know there's a significant debate. I'm not going to get into all the details of it. It would take us too much time and we'll simply end up in the same place anyway. There's a lot of debate over whether vessel is a reference to one's own wife, similar to 1 Corinthians 7, where he says, if you want to avoid immorality, you must have your own spouse. And some people say because of the use of this word in 1 Peter 3, 7, where it refers to a wife as the weaker vessel, Another issue, we're not going to get into that this morning, but it's an important passage. Some say this is referring to a wife. You, if you really know how to engage your wife in holiness and in an honorable way, you'll avoid immorality. And there's good reason for that argument here, but I don't think that's the emphasis. The word vessel is never used in the New Testament to refer to a, a woman as a wife herself. In fact, uh, men are referred to as a vessel in 1 Peter 3, 7 also. She's the weaker vessel, meaning that he's not. So I don't think this is a reference to a wife. In fact, 2 Corinthians 4, 7 talks about we have this treasure in earthen vessels, meaning our physical body. It's our physical body. So likely here it refers to a person's physical body. And maybe even in particular, it's a reference to the sexual organ. He doesn't use the normal term soma for body, but this term, skuos, for the vessel. So he could be referring to the sexual organs. And I want you to notice here, it's not just merely corral the body, keep down physical expression, but learn how to master it. Learn how to master the body in sanctification and honor. This is really important. You get these. These are two different emphases in these words. You have to learn how to master your body in sanctification, a word we've already looked at that means in devotion to God. So there's an upward element that you must learn how to control your body in a way that honors God, that shows that you value God above all other things. Now, if you're not going to value God with your body, you're not going to overcome immorality. But if you will, and you say, my body belongs to the Lord and how I use my body belongs to God, that's the ground floor. But it's not just sanctification. It's also you must master your body in honor. Now the word honor, when you look up the other uses of that term, especially by the Apostle Paul, almost always refers to how you value someone else. 
Not just an upward value, you value God, but a horizontal value. You value each other. You possess your body in a way that shows you honor God and you also honor other people, which is really interesting when you think about sexual immorality. What is immorality doing to the other person? What is immorality doing in your mind toward another person? Makes them cheap. It makes them exist for your own pleasure and you're not valuing them. You're only valuing yourself. That's not treating a person in honor. You have to use your body so that it honors another, is loyal to others, as well as loyal to God. Control your body. There's another one, another way to exercise self-control. And this is a really debated issue today, especially in the Christian culture even. It's not just control your body. Secondly, control your desires. Control your desires. So I'm to avoid sexual immorality, knowing how to master my own body, but also, verse 5, not in lustful passion. Lustful passion. That is passion-driven desires. Passion-driven desires. Lustful is not an adjective here. It's actually a noun. It's the noun for strong desire, epithumia. Strong desires used 19 times by Paul in his letters and only two of the 19 have any positive use. All the others, 17 uses by Paul, refer to sinful kinds of urgings and desires, lusts. And I regularly hear people say, well, you, you can't hold someone accountable for what they desire. It's just natural to them. Do you recall what God says about desires in Romans 1, verse 24? God gave them, that is, those who are not pursuing them, he gave them over in the lusts, that's the word, the desires of their hearts to impurity. What does that mean? God has given over the unbelieving world to their own desires, which lead to impurity. So it then feels instinctive, natural. It's the natural impulse. God gave them over to what already existed in them because they will not believe. Clearly, Paul indicates that desires that are connected to our unredeemed humanness, which the Bible calls the flesh, are sinful. And they're to be controlled by the effects of the gospel. Again, I know that's a great debate today as to whether or not a person's sexual desires can actually be overcome or whether they should be. Or even if they are sinful. They just seem to be so natural. And Paul doesn't deny that they're a part of your sinful nature. They're connected to the flesh. But these desires, these are precisely those desires which must not be merely denied in terms of acting on them, but even in terms of having the desires. That's a great debate in some Christian circles today on whether or not just having the desire is wrong. 
according to what Paul and how he speaks of desires, it is sinful. They are by nature and category sinful desires. You have to master your own body. You have to master your own desires. And he even says, not like the Gentiles who give themselves over to passionate lusts. So you say, well, how are you going to change what seems so instinctive and that we feel? We've often said, and we've talked about this before, feelings sometimes seem to come from nowhere. They just show up. They seem like they're natural impulses. They're biologically driven instincts. But again, what does the Bible actually say about our feelings and our natural desires, our longings, especially the stronger ones that come from our humanness and lead into alternate forms of sexuality? Feelings actually come from how you think and how you process, and we develop habits and patterns of thinking from our beginning days, and those feelings seem biologically instinctive to us at times, because we can't detect at when they began. Some can even say, I don't know when this started, it just, it just happened, or it's what I've always known. Well, of course it is. It's your sinful nature. should not surprise us. But what are we to do with sexual desires? Well, according to the Bible, when it uses these terms, and particularly the Apostle Paul, we have to know them. We have to know what those desires are and their appetites. Remember, put on the Lord Jesus, make no provision for the flesh in regard to the lusts. Know the lusts and do not feed them. We also have to stop giving our bodies over as an instrument that belongs to our desires. You have to stop telling yourself that it's okay to act out everything you feel. Now, no one wants to live in a culture like that. We have laws to keep you from acting out what you instinctively feel. What if I feel like I want to defraud you of all your income? Is it moral then? No, and Paul even says this, therefore do not let sin reign in your mortal body, Romans 6, 12, so that you obey its lust. Do not let it reign. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of righteousness, of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you. You are not under the law, you're under grace. You should not be a master, be mastered by sin because grace has liberated you to live for God. Lusts have to be checked by the gospel because lusts are signs of the old self that you put off when you became a Christian. I'll just give you one reference. There are many I could give you. Titus 3.3, we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. That's who we used to be. So lusts are overcome when we actually live in accord under the domination of the Spirit. If you live by the Spirit, you will not fulfill the lusts of the flesh. We're to run from those sinful desires. 2 Timothy 2.22, flee from youthful lusts. Pursue righteousness, faith, love, and peace. The gospel message itself says that you have to overcome those desires. The gospel of grace, Titus 2.12, instructs us to deny ungodliness and to deny worldly desires. You can't be like, as Paul says back in our text, like the Gentiles who don't know God. 
Now, this, that's a powerful statement because who, who, what's the predominant audience of the church in Thessalonica? This was the capital city of, of Macedonia. This was a prominent city in the ancient world, and they were all Gentiles. Almost everybody there was Gentile. What do you mean, not like the Gentiles? Well, they know what the Gentiles are because the Gentiles are those who are devoted to other gods. And what was connected to most of the worship of the pagan gods? Immorality. So you can't be like the Gentiles like you used to be, who do not know God. And that's a pretty powerful statement. Those Gentiles who live under the lusts of their flesh do not know God. In fact, Colossians 3, 5, consider the members of your earthly body as dead to immorality, impurity, passion, evil desire, and greed, which amounts to idolatry. Did you hear that? Idolatry is almost always connected to immorality. Immorality always connected to idolatry, which is where sexual sin comes from, where you idolize self. Self-expression, self-desire, self-supremacy, self-autonomy. I mean, that is the God of our culture. Autonomy is the God of our culture. And God will not bow to us. We are to bow to him. So avoiding immorality and the desires that drive it, it's a sure way to make a distinction between yourself and the rest of the world that doesn't know the Lord. Even more so today. The sexual ethic of the Christian church cannot mimic that of the culture. And when it's distinct, then it's distinct based on God-centered ways, then we'll show the character of God. Meaning, church discipline is reserved for those who will not repent of sexual deviation so that we have a community that reflects the distinction of God, not out of anger, not out of some kind of unkindness, but because the supremacy of God is uppermost and it's the key to all satisfaction. Do you want to know why sexual deviation leads to such depths of depression and despair and why the counseling movement feeds off of immorality today? Because it leaves people bankrupt. Bankrupt of any real satisfaction. Because we're not designed to be fulfilled with that kind of immorality. So, avoid immorality. And then you also really need to exercise self-control over the body, over the desires. Last. We'll finish with this. A third necessary angle to pursue a gospel-driven approach to growing in sexual purity. Examine your motives. Examine your motives. Here we're going to see the reasons why you avoid immorality and control your body. Why? Because of these gospel-driven motives. In fact, what distinguishes a Christian approach to sexuality and a non-Christian approach? Because any person, you don't have to have the gospel to be disciplined. Lots of non-Christians are disciplined and they can control themselves in certain ways. I can give you lots of examples of that, of how the, the non-Christian world can hold them back themselves back from a lot of immorality because there's financial considerations, cultural considerations, lots of things. But what's the motive behind it all? When God becomes the motivation, Christ is the motivation, and our satisfaction in Christ becomes the motivation, then you begin to see a Christian ethic, not a self-disciplined ethic. 
So what are these motives? Well, let me, let me put three of them in front of us and we'll, we'll just touch on these. One, in your avoiding immorality, are you motivated by Jesus coming? And particularly, I have in mind here, and Paul has in mind here, the judgment of Jesus when he comes. It's found in verse 6. Are you motivated by Jesus coming? Verse 6. Here's another reason you put off immorality. That no man transgress and defraud his brother in the matter. The matter being sexual immorality. Because the Lord is the avenger in all of these things. The Lord is the avenger in all these things. What things? These things related to sexual immorality. No person should transgress and defraud. Transgress is to cross a line. Here's a relationship. You cross a line. Well, how, who determines the line? Well, the word of God def- defines the line. Here's the line. Scripture gives it to us. You cross the line, you transgress against a brother or a sister. Do not cross the line against another person. And when you cross the line against them, what does immorality do to the other person according to this text? It defrauds them. That's a word that simply means it takes advantage of them. You take advantage of them. You lure them into the behavior with your own behavior and you defraud them. You take something away from them they cannot get back. You defraud them. There's no true love in sexual immorality. It's false kinds of love. It's certainly not biblical love. It's not God-centered love in immorality. You can never say as you engage in immorality that you actually love a person. No, you don't. If you love them, you would not defraud them by this immoral behavior. You would think more about their holiness and their standing before God. But, but the fact that you engage in this says you care nothing about their holiness, nothing about their sanctification, nothing about their value in front of God. You'll treat them just as you want for your own pleasure. That's defrauding. That's not love. And there are spiritual consequences to that. This text says you defraud them, you stand accountable to Jesus in his own judgment when he comes. He will hold you accountable. You can get away with it. The court doesn't find you guilty. Statue of limitations runs out. Whatever happens, you'll stand in front of the ultimate judge, Jesus. He is the avenger, it says here, of those you've defrauded. Now, he's already talked about the coming of the Lord in chapter 2, at the end of chapter 2, the end of chapter 3, and the coming of the Lord. That's when he's going to present the saints sanctified. But if you remember, he talked about the coming of the Lord at the end of chapter 1, and he referred to the Thessalonians as those in the gospel. They're waiting for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. What does that refer to? He rescues his children from the coming wrath of God towards sin. And one sin that God will avenge particularly is when you defraud another through immorality. God is the the avenger. You don't have to take your own vengeance. Remember Romans 12? Leave room for the wrath of God. Nothing will escape his notice. Is there forgiveness now if I've done that? Of course there is. Jesus has paid 
all of the penalty for all of your sin. Even if you have defrauded another person through immorality, he has paid for that too. Yes, you can be forgiven. Yes, there is full and free forgiveness that will never be held against you by the Lord if you will confess that now and repent of it. Yes, but if you do not do it now, you will face his judgment and his vengeance in his coming. You'll face him. So are you motivated by the coming of Jesus to avoid sexual immorality? There's a second motivation. Are you motivated by the Father's calling? Are you motivated by the Father's calling? This is a Trinitarian response here in our motives. The coming of Jesus and the Father's own calling. Verse 7 God has not, the Father, God has not called us. That word called means, it's a synonym for salvation. He did not bring you into salvation. It's a beautiful expression of what salvation is. It's not just you choosing, it's God calling. He has called you to himself, even when you did not want him. When you were denying him, he's calling to you, calling and bringing you in and orchestrating the circumstances so that you come. That's his calling. Salvation, but he did not call you into salvation for the sake of and the purpose of impurity. If he's holy and he defines what holiness is and distinctiveness that exalts his name, he did not call you in so that you would live contrary to who he is, but so that you might live in conformity to who he is. And again, this is your motivation. Are you motivated by what salvation actually is? It's the calling of God to holiness. And listen, the gospel doesn't just magically make you live in purity. It's a calling from which you you look at that calling and you see that calling and you say, I'm going to live my life in devotion to this God who has loved me. It means you're rehearsing the gospel all the time to yourself of what he has liberated you from. And you see all the sin of your past and he's forgiven you of all of that. And there's such rich and deep mercy in God. And you say, I cannot possibly keep in this lifestyle in light of what he's forgiven me for. That's how you live with the motivation of God's calling in the gospel. There's a third motive. It's in verse eight. Are you motivated by the spirits indwelling? By Jesus coming, the father's calling. Are you also motivated by the spirits indwelling? Verse eight. This is really a powerful statement. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God, notice this, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. This is the beauty of salvation in Jesus Christ. This is the uniqueness of salvation in Jesus that is unlike any other era and age, even in the Old Testament. When you follow Christ, you receive the Spirit to dwell within you so that the Spirit assists you to live out all of the expectations of God. I encourage you to go and read Romans 8. That's the whole point of Romans 8. There's no condemnation because now you have the Spirit. Your mind is set on the Spirit, not the flesh. And the Spirit causes you to live out the law of God so that you live in conformity to his word. He dwells in you. In fact, Paul was very specific in this in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19 when he's talking about immorality, he asks this question. He says, do you not know that your body is the temple of whom? The Holy Spirit. What's he referring to? 
your physical body. Your physical body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own. What does that destroy? Autonomy. It's mine to choose. No, friend. It is not yours to choose. That is an ungodly way to think about life. He bought you. That's what the text says. You have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body. The Spirit indwells you. You are the temple of God, dedicated to the worship of God. Glorify him with your body. Sexual sin is a radical misuse of the body. The body, yes, with the spirit, is to bear the image of God. Salvation is all about restoring us to the image of God as we see it pictured in Jesus. That's what salvation is. So to use your body in an immoral way is a strike against the image of God. It's a strike against God. And you say, listen, you've gone on and on about this and I don't believe any of that. That's fine. Again, just be clear, verse 8. So he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but God. So dismiss me, dismiss this passage, fine. But just know what you're doing when you do that. You, you can't say, I'm going to have a relationship with God on my own terms, according to my own standard. I'm going to write the Bible on this. You can't do that. So to reject this is to reject God. You say, oh, this is just Paul's thinking. Listen, when Paul writes, you're hearing what God thinks. You're hearing God. You must understand what this author is saying if you want to know the divine intention. To reject it is to reject God. That should make it pretty clear. So how do we help each other? There it is. You... You help each other stop the sin, avoid the immorality. You exercise self-control. You examine the motivations. Is this really driven by the gospel? And I just want to say again, if this is you, and you are under the weight and the guilt of this kind of immorality, do not avoid talking about it. Let's talk. Let's meet Let's pray. Let's get into the details of how you can be helped to avoid this. It might even mean you're coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Liberating you from this kind of sin might liberate you into deep satisfaction rather than the frustration that is plaguing your life. Don't avoid. Call. Come talk to us. Better yet, you could turn to any Christian in this room And you could turn to them and say, I need help on this. And we will walk together through it. This text was given so that we would help each other. Let's pray together. Father, we, we pray that as we finish out our time together, that what we have talked through would move our hearts to abandon sin for the glory of Jesus in our life. I pray that you would make the distinction clear. We either live for the Lord or we live for ourselves. There's no, there's no middle ground there. Would you, by your spirit, press that reality into our heart? 
Make us come face to face with what is clearly on the page of Scripture that comes from your hand and force us that if we're going to deny it, we have to realize that we're denying what you have said and we're denying you. But, oh God, I pray for there to be a submissiveness and a humility before you that sees such sin as something that the gospel actually comes to the rescue for. Help us to be a people distinctly devoted to Christ and not given over to immorality. Help us with this, we pray in Jesus' name.